Hey, I want to um, I want to take you behind the curtains a little bit, uh, um, behind the curtains with your evening preachers. Give you a little window into the the chatter back and forth as we anticipated gathering here with you uh, these three nights. It started when Michael connected all of us together, Richie, uh, myself, and Elliot Cherry, who will be with you tomorrow night. And uh, he said, I'm going to leave, Michael wisely said, I'm going to leave it up to you guys to figure out how to coordinate this. And, and then for the next uh, three weeks, crickets, um, nothing. And then finally, uh, I think all three of us were began thinking about it at the time. And then, uh, <clears throat> and then Richie said, hey, we probably ought to, in a text or email, uh, let's, let's, let's see what we can do to coordinate what we're doing here. And, um, and so everybody said, yeah, let's do that. And then a few more days, nothing. And then finally, uh, late last week, I think, is when uh, Elliot said, hey, what are you guys doing? <laughs> what are you guys doing with your, uh, <clears throat> with your evenings? And uh, I responded with a real two-point, I mean, just two, two sentences, and Elliot responded back, boy, that sounds like a lot better than what I had planned. And, uh, and uh, I, <clears throat> that's Elliot being Elliot. And then uh, a little bit later, um, uh, Richie chimed in with um, four words, I think. John 6, bread of life. That's five words. Uh, Elliot's response was lame. LAUGHTER uh, then a little bit more banter went back and forth, and we, we decided to pray for one another and for you uh, these three nights. But, uh, Michael, I caught your sports analogies and um, recognized that um, my job, if, if I'm batting second, I guess, if I'm batting second, my role is to advance the runner. That's my role. So I'm going to suppose that, that Richie's standing on second base. And my job is to hit behind the runner to right field in order to get him to third base because we did agree that whatever happened the first two nights, <laughs> Elliot's job was to clear the bases. So um, <laughs> I mention that uh, because it's a little bit humorous, but, um, but it's also a picture. Actually, it is a picture of the body of Christ at work. And what we would trust is some progression that goes on uh, from one night to the next to the next this week for you. That's our hope and prayer that the Lord would use uh, what comes from th three guys who've been at this a bit but have stories to tell about God's faithfulness and his reality to you. That's our hope that progress there will be some progression here and that the Lord would take this and do something with it. Um, one other Charlottesville story, <clears throat> Michael, uh, that you might appreciate too. When I arrived in Charlottesville, by the way, I grew up in Nashville. I uh, went to RTS Jackson as a newlywed. Uh, we, we landed there and we, uh, we had $50 when we arrived and we had $50 when we left. Uh, but when we left, it was to Charlottesville, Virginia, where I served as the youth pastor for a few years. And I remember saying, uh, I'm willing to work with youth as, as long as I'm effective. I just don't want to be the last person to know uh, that I'm effective. And so I, was, I got to Charlottesville, Virginia. But when I did, uh, Trinity was richly blessed with two remarkably gifted preachers, Skip Ryan uh, and Charlie Drew. Uh, they were both remarkable, and, but they were distinctive. And then to add to the mix, 
Coming into the Presbytery the same time, same time I did was one Edmund Clowney from Westminster Seminary who taught Nancy Guthrie and the rest of us about biblical theology. Uh, so there was Ed, <clears throat> there was Skip, and there was Charlie. The receptionist at the church was a volunteer job, and it was post, the post was held by a, a retired British woman who would answer the phone. This was back before anything other than landlines. And uh, she would inevitably get the question, who's preaching this week? And she got a little weary of that question after a while. <clears throat> and eventually she said, in her British accent, which I won't try, um, I can assure you that this week the Word of God will be brought to you by the Holy Spirit. Um, and and that is, that's really the truth, isn't it? That's what Richie, uh, Elliot, and I all uh, are trusting as well, that the Lord would do His work with this, with you, to, to, um, to make Christ real and vivid. That's my hope and prayer. We're going to look uh, tonight at a... <clears throat> um, at a passage in Mark 7. If you have a Bible or an app, uh, you can turn there. I will read it, uh, certainly. But um, <clears throat> this, is, uh, <clears throat> this is one of those fascinating stories. You know uh, that Mark had been an eyewitness to the resurrection, the crucifixion and the resurrection. You, you know that Mark belonged to a founding f- uh, family of the Christian church. Uh, you know that he was a companion with... Peter and then Paul on their missionary work. And if you've read Mark, and you have, you know that he's a compelling storyteller. And what we come to is a fascinating and compelling story that is, um, it's the tip of an iceberg that will, um, that, that comes into view if we, as we read this carefully and thoughtfully. And accurately. Uh, and that's my hope and prayer. Uh, the verses, <clears throat> it begins in verse 37. It is the healing of a deaf man. Then he, Jesus, returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephathatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is God's word. Let me pray. Lord, now as we sit before you and your word, would you fill us with your spirit? Would you soften our hearts that we may delight in your presence? Would you open our ears that we may hear your voice? Loose our tongues that we may declare your glory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. One of the things that is certainly true about the Bible is that it is realistic. It is realistic about 
in this case, uh, the hardships and the agony that we endure in this world. If you think about it, as you just read through the sweep and the scope, it is, it's one changing story about hardship and, and agony and brokenness from Genesis 3 on, right? Uh, it's there. It's one of the things that commends the Bible for its, uh, for its genuineness, that it doesn't, it never calls it anything else. It never calls anything less than hardship and misery and agony. Uh, <clears throat> when I was in Charlottesville, Virginia, I got to know when he brought his son to, to school there, uh, Stephen Garber, a name I hope you become familiar with if you're not. He's written quite a bit on the notion of Christian vocation in the workplace, in the marketplace. He, he gets that very well, and he's done things to help you and those that you work with get that. Stephen Garber, The Fabric of Faithfulness, was one of the books that I would hope you find if you haven't. But that's not all he does. And he works with the Washington Institute, or has until recently. I think he's in a different role there now. <clears throat> but he was the executive director for years. He wrote this um, that struck me as so true and accurate. There's enough sorrow in the world to make us wonder at the weight of the wounds that we see and hear and feel all day long every week of our lives. Be still for a moment and think about it. And when I was still for a moment and thought about it, I thought about the phone call I got from a college roommate who said, I've got cancer. I thought about uh, the, the mother and father in our church who got a phone call <clears throat> this past year saying, your son has been murdered. I thought about the unexpected funerals that we attend, the miscarriage, uh, Garber writes, sometimes it seems like it just doesn't stop. And then he goes on, if it isn't the finality of death in its starkness that overwhelms us, then think again about the rest of life, the brokenness of the ordinary that everyone lives with, the disappointments and griefs that make us sigh and sigh again, knowing our frailty as we do, knowing the frailty of the world all around us. And if ever that was in doubt... 2020 drives that one home in so many ways. The message of this text, of this passage, is that you can face the grief and the agony and the misery of this world because it is swept up by the redemptive love of God. Mingled with our grief is the hope of the world the hope of the world to come, which at times breaks into this one. And that's what we see in this passage. I want to um, <clears throat> unpack it this way just for our time to think about uh, what we see in this passage. We see something about the ways of God. We some see something about the heart of God, the hands of God, and the purpose of God. And as you read that text, you might want to ask, where is God in this text? Well, you know, but I'll tell you. I'll tell you what John says about it. Whoever has seen me, Jesus says, has seen the Father. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. And the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, God was in Christ, 
reconciling the world into himself. So let's think about this if, if we can. The ways of God are sometimes curious. Um, I'm not yet talking about this strange, curious healing. What I'm really talking about right now is verse 31. And if you had a map, and some of you do, or there's one in the back of your Bible, or you've got a Bible atlas, you, you might get a hint at what I'm talking about. If you were familiar with that geography, you would already know, but most of us aren't. Um, when he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee, Jesus starts by going north to Sidon, a, a town on the coast, and then he goes 25 miles to another coastal town called Tyre. And then he does, then he does a U-turn. This route that he takes his disciples on is a horseshoe. It's a horseshoe-shaped itinerary of 120 miles in length. Uh, and they're walking, remember. <laughs> 120 miles. Jesus goes north in order to go south. Now, you've got to imagine that one, at least one or two of the disciples had a question that they were afraid to ask. <laughs> you know, there was a shorter way, and, and uh, we're tired and weary. What was that about? <clears throat> now, there may have been things, to be honest, there may have been things occur on that journey that aren't recorded. We just don't know. It's silent. But it's a horseshoe journey going north to go south. And the only thing that you can draw from it is that Jesus was spending time with his guys. And as I think about the curious journeys in my own life, or maybe your curious journeys in your own life, the curious ways God has with you, Maybe that's what it's about. Maybe that's what those curious journeys are about. And I know firsthand some of you have those stories that are, that are fresh of not knowing what's going on or not knowing why you went north to go south or maybe it's the other way around or west to go east. God's ways with us are sometimes curious. Frankly, they're often curious, <laughs> Um, because we can't see what he can see, obviously. But sometimes what we most need is what he's most ready to provide when he takes us the wrong direction. I can't help but wonder that because it's in the next chapter that Peter proclaims, well, you're the Messiah. That's who you are. It's this growing apprehension and comprehension and grasp of who this one is. And it sometimes takes a trip north to go south for that to, to develop or to, or to materialize or to come on the radar screen or for the, for the penny to drop, you know, to use another word picture. The aha you know, how many of the kids you work with or your own story was, yeah, I heard the gospel, but I never heard the gospel. Um, I think for me, 
the first time I really heard the gospel was a senior in high school, between my junior and senior year of high school, when I, when I heard the gospel the first time. At least, that's the first time I know I heard the gospel. Uh, when it took a, a long route to, to help me get to a place, and God will do what he needs to do. But sometimes his ways are curious. That's the first thing. The ways of God are sometimes curious. The heart of God is moved by our misery. We see that in verse 32 when a group of of friends apparently bring a man to Jesus. That's what's going on here. Uh, Jesus, you know, is is doing this uh, traveling tour where he's teaching and healing, and sometimes he will heal and then he'll move on quickly. And he's coming into this town, and a crowd is formed, and a, and a group of friends bring a man to Jesus, and, and, they, and they bring him in front of the man and present him in his condition, in a condition that is dire, let's say. His condition, first of all, we, we read in verse 32, is that he's deaf. He cannot hear. Uh, it's most likely from a disease or injury. I'll explain that a little bit later. We don't know why. Could be by birth, but he has a speech impediment, so he's been able to speak, which is why it may be from disease or injury that he's lost his hearing. I got a question for you. If you had to choose between losing your ears and losing your eyes, losing your hearing or losing your sight, what would you choose? Think about that. Let me tell you what... Kent Hughes says about that choice to get, to get into the skin of this, of this man. The handicap was indeed terrible, meaning a loss of hearing, especially in ancient times. If we were given the choice between blindness and deafness, the idea of losing our hearing does not seem nearly as debilitating as losing our vision. But medical authorities and the deaf themselves tell us otherwise. Terrible as blindness is, the blind do not suffer the social pain and stigma experienced by the deaf, the gawking, impatient stares of those who are not aware of one's condition. There's also the humiliation of being thought stupid because one cannot understand. To be honest, I had never thought about that. You see, when you're deaf... You don't look deaf. You just appear to be stupid. So there's an element of this man's condition that goes beyond our first sensibilities. There's, there's not only the physical ailment and difficulties of, that he deals with day to day, deaf, cannot hear, but the social and, and the emotional weight that goes with that because of the way he's treated. And then he has a speech impediment. The NIV says he could hardly talk. It's an unusual term, frankly. It's only, it only occurs one other place. We'll get to that in a moment. But, but he could only speak with great effort and without clarity. I grew up with a friend named Mike who was deaf, but he could read lips, which is the only reason we were friends, because he could read my lips. He lived in the back, across the backyard, and so we spent time after school together playing 
all kinds of things. Um, he played Jimi Hendrix really loud. I remember that. <laughs> um, but when Mike talked, it was really hard to understand. I had to really concentrate. He could read my lips a lot better than I could understand his words. And the reason was he didn't know what they were supposed to sound like. He had never heard the words. So it was a speech impediment <clears throat> at best. Uh, that marks the, the condition of the man. Uh, and that condition has an effect. Uh, here's what one other writer says. The very way we walk, move, gesture, speak is shaped by our awareness that we appear before others, that we stand in public space, and that this space of potentiality is one of respect or contempt, of pride or shame. What do you suppose marked this man's life? Contempt and shame. That's the condition of the man, and here is Jesus. We, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're, now what we're going to see is we're going to see the heart of Jesus respond to the condition of the man. It may be <clears throat> that this man had always been treated like a nobody, but Jesus never met a nobody, and neither have you. Jesus never met a nobody. What he saw in this individual was certainly one who created in, in the image of God. Suffering the results of the fall and the brokenness of the world. And so here is the heart of Jesus in engaging the man. The presence of Christ begins to change everything. It changes uh, your outlook on your deepest issues and your deepest needs. The presence of Christ changes that. It changes your outlook. Here's what I, there's a book on your book table downstairs I hope you will get if you haven't somewhere along the way by Dane Ortland, Gentle and Lowly, where he says um, in part of his book, when he's talking about the misery that marks life in this broken world, our misery causes his love to surge forward. Jesus moves toward our misery, not away from it. And how many times have I crossed the street to avoid the brokenness of the world? Not Jesus. In, in 2 Corinthians 1, Paul describes and writes about the Father of mercies, plural. Thomas Goodwin, an English pastor of the 17th century, said about that phrase, Father of mercies, there is no sin or misery, but God has a mercy for it. He has a multitude of mercies of every kind. And when he encounters a man who cannot hear with a speech impediment, he's got those mercies. Portland says, in Jesus Christ, we are given a friend who will always enjoy rather than refuse our presence. The Bible takes us by the hand and leads us out from under the feeling that God's heart for us wavers according to our loveliness. And so that explains why Jesus does anything. 
But what he does is remarkable and astonishing. The hands of God reveal his heart and his power. We see that in verses 33 to 35. This man had been another face in the crowd up until this point. And and they brought the man to Jesus. And did you catch what Jesus does? He takes him away from the crowd. He doesn't explain why he's taking away the crowd. You've got to wonder, though, what's going on in the man's mind. Jesus is taking him away from the crowd. You've got to wonder what that exchange might have looked like. But he follows, and he goes with Jesus away from the crowd. Uh, there's speculation. Don Carson suggests that it's either to avoid hostile unbelief of the crowd, which was a common response to Jesus, the hostile unbelief. Uh, maybe it was the unwanted publicity. He's continually, even in this passage, tampering down people's expectations and the publicity that goes with his presence. Or maybe it was he wanted to avoid making a spectacle of, a man, of the man before the gawking onlookers. Or maybe it was all three. In any case, he's alone with Jesus, removed from the excitement and the distraction of the crowd. His eyes watch Jesus, and he understands that Jesus is about to do something for him. For taking him away must have been done for some specific purpose. Now, at times, the hand of God in your life is hard. There are things that that God brings our way that are sometimes hard. But here, his hands are tender. And I just want to remind you that it's the same hands. The hands that are sometimes hard are always and at the same time tender. He doesn't stop being one to be the other. It's the same person. So what does he do? He does some, a series of things that we might just call sign language. He's, he's choosing to communicate and make sure that he communicates to this man who cannot hear and he cannot talk plainly. The first thing he does is he takes his fingers and places them in the man's ears. Now, I don't know about you, but that's... That's moving into personal comfort territory right there. Um, I'm, not, I'm trying to remember if anybody's ever put their fingers in my ears. I don't think so. But, but just the reality of that. He's signaling to this man, I'm going to deal with your ears. And then he does something that's at least curious, if not bizarre, where he spits on his hand and probably uses... He takes one finger out, spits on his hand, uses the other hand to, to, to motion the man for the man to open his mouth, and he takes that spittle and places it on the man's tongue. Your junior hires will love this. <laughs> and then he does something else. He doesn't stop there. I'm dealing with your ears. I'm going to deal with that impediment. And did you catch what he does next? He looks heavenward. To communicate to this man who cannot hear, what I'm about to do to you comes from the God who made you, who made this world. This is a heavenly moment for you. And then he sighs. Now we might suppose that 
that close. You know, you can't do this without being face-to-face. You thought about that? You can't put your fingers in someone else's ears without being face-to-face. You can't touch their tongue. That's what's going on here. This is a face-to-face moment with the one who made the world and the one who has entered the world to make all things new. And he sighs, and maybe he even feels the breath of Jesus hitting his own face. Why did he sigh? It, it may, a, a, good, a good guess at that, we're not told, is an awareness of the, of the depth and the extent of the fallenness and the brokenness of the world. That would make sense. I mean, we sigh, don't we? Instantly, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. (laughs) What do you think he said? Just ponder that. It was a full restoration. Uh, His ears were opened, his tongue was released, he spoke plainly. There was no halfway measures here. Here's the deal. When God shows up in the midst of our misery, he comes with more than sympathy. He comes with love and power. He comes with love and power to move right toward the needs that are there as a result of the fall. Now, if we were to seal this off, it's a beautiful story of Jesus' compassion and his personal action. It's a remarkably touching story, just that part. But if we dig a little, we find a gold mine of redemptive treasure. So for the next couple of minutes... A little lesson in biblical theology. Do you know anything about that? Of course you know about biblical theology. Here's the deal. Um, The the ways of God are sometimes curious. The, The heart of God is moved by our misery. The hands of God come with love and power. And the purpose of God is unfolding and certain. As you have learned to suspect sometimes there's a story underneath the narrative. Underneath, in this case, the miracles. And we, and we get a hint of this, of the story beneath the story or the ice beneath the tip of the iceberg uh, in three, three fashions. One is what Jesus said. What does he say to the, to the man afterwards? What does he say to the crowd? Don't talk about this. He says, don't talk about this. He says, let's don't talk about this. He's tampering down the, 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 in, the impulse of these people that have watched this to share the news, and he's continually tampering it down. We wonder, why, why? Why, is he, why isn't he bringing more people to do this, to have more evidence of who he is and what he's doing? And that is simply because there's more to the story that is not ready to be unfolded. It's, it's that he doesn't want to be rushed into Jerusalem on a, to, to be a king at this place. He's got more to do and more to say. My hour has not yet come. That's why he continually says, not yet. Don't tell anyone. That's one clue. The, the other clue is what else Jesus was doing. Now, you have to go to the parallel passage in Matthew 15, 
uh, to get this. Right here we read, he, does all th- he has done all things well, and he makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Here's how Matthew puts it. You can look at this later, Matthew 15. Very same episode, but here's the description. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And then great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put them at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind singing, and they glorified the God of Israel. So there's a lot going on in Jesus' public ministry right now. That's a clue. <laughs> He's not simply healing a deaf man but he is moving toward all kinds of brokenness. But the final and the clincher here is not just what Jesus said and what else he was doing. It's what Jesus had in mind. You know, I said that word was only used once. It's a rare word to talk about this thick tongue with which he spoke. It's only found one other time. Thick-voiced is the way the ESV Uh, translates it. He had a speech impediment. Only one other occurrence. And it's in the Greek translation of Isaiah, the the Septuagint. That's where you find this strange word, megalolos. Only one other time, only one other occasion, and it's in Isaiah 35. Let me read this to you. You can look later. It's the first, I'm going to select among the first six verses of Isaiah 35. The wilderness, this is what Jesus had in mind. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Oh, by the way, Tyre and Sidon? Where they went before they got to the Decapolis? Lebanon. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute. There it is. The magalas. The tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Here's the deal. This is what Jesus is aware of and what he's highlighting, what what Mark is highlighting. The restoration of speech to a megalolos signals the promised arrival of the day of the Lord. The promised intervention of God in Isaiah 35 was taking place in the ministry of Jesus Jesus' unusual actions in this Gentile region of Lebanon indicate or reveal that He is the Lord come to restore the image of God in humanity by opening ears and loosening tongues. Isaiah 35, though, is essentially the final chapter in a long section. Those first 40 chapters of Isaiah are filled with judgment of the nations. And here comes Jesus to a mute, speech impediment guy coming with restoration, but without judgment.
So Tim Keller puts it like this. Jesus has come not to bring retribution, but to bear it for us. Jesus was silent before his accusers. He became mute so that our tongues could be loosed to call him king. As he heals the mute man, he knows that not long from now, he will be silent before his accusers. He will take the judgment and the retribution that belongs to the coming of the Lord so that our tongues can be loosed. There's one response to that. There's really one response to the, to, to the glory of that. And it's not simply biblical curiosity satisfied. I mean, there's some ahas that go on when you see what Mark is doing and what Jesus is thinking. But all of that is to one end and for one purpose. And that is to cause not your minds to click, but your jaws to drop. To be staggered and astonished. You see, the breaking in of the kingdom of God always elicits wonders, Old and New Testament. When the kingdom of God breaks in, it elicits that awe and wonder. That's what we saw. The crowd was astonished. They were filled with awe and wonder at what they had seen. And that was just the tip of the grand story that Jesus' life and ministry unfolds and accomplishes. Paul Paul talks about the reality. He cites the, the fact that the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk talks about the wonders that accompany God's redemptive work. And he quotes that when he talks about the resurrection. <clears throat> you see the resurrection. Or how about just your new birth? Those are, those are things that are, are intended to cause our jaws to drop and to wonder and astonishment. So let me give you a couple of takeaways. If all this is true, and I think that it is, let it melt you. You know, we find throughout the four Gospels and in Acts examples of astonishment, all kinds of examples of astonishment without faith. But we never find genuine faith without astonishment. And if your faith has lost the edge of that astonishment, here's your invitation to consider once again maybe the reality that, that there is a face behind the hands, the hands that move toward you. And now we see dimly. One day we will see face to face. 
but we don't need to wait until that day. Because the promise of God is that as Aaron blesses and benedicts, that that God would turn his face to you, that he would turn his face toward you and give you peace. And some of us need to know that. No, all of us need to know that. Some of us know why we need to know it now. Even in a year that's been unprecedentedly difficult, we need as much as ever to know this heart of God that your misery, whatever degree and duration it is, causes his mercy to surge toward you. That he comes face to face with you. Still. And forever. Father, would you do that work in us? Would you move toward us with your presence and the power of your love to come toward us in our agonies, whatever they are? Would you remind us, Lord, that nothing stands between us and your love? that our, the grief that we experience in this world is swept up by the redemptive love of God and that you never are shy, you're never reluctant to shower us with that affection and power. Lord, do that work in us. Equip us that we might uh, be instruments in your hands, vessels of your mercy to others. But Lord, we cannot give what we do not have. And we need to know the tender mercies of our Father who, who is drawn to our need and comes relentlessly toward us. Thank you that you have loosed our tongues that we might call you King. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand.